I'm Will Primos, and you're listening to the Fochi Creek Podcast. Hey, I'm Jimmy Primos, and this is my buddy Lake Pickle, and you're listening to the Fochi Creek Podcast. Yeah, they are. You're listening to Joby and Shed on the Fochi Creek Podcast. It's not as good to speak the language, but it's close. <laughs> this is Ben Rising with Whitetail Edge, and you're listening to Fochi Creek Podcast with Shed and Joby. This is Austin Delano with Mossy Oak Biologic and Gamekeepers, and you're listening to Joe B. and Shed Whitaker on Forsy Creek Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is James Harrison, Harrison Custom Calls. Hey, you're listening to Joe B. and Shed on the Forsy Creek Podcast. Have a good one. You're listening to Forsy Creek Podcast. I'm Joe B. Holland. Uh, with me is a co host, Mr. Shed Whitaker. Today's episode, we have Mr. Steve Stoltz of Jury Outdoors, of Mossy Oak, Woodhaven Custom Calls, and Steve is a world champion caller. Uh, just to give some background on him, and really, you can't leave any of this out, and it's not uh, bragging on Steve, it's just stating the pure facts, and they're just pretty impressive. So they have to all be said, I think, to really, to really feel it. And that is, first of all, full-time firefighter. He's referred to as uh, the working man's hunter. He's a three-time world turkey calling champion, NWTF Grand National Champion of Champions, the 2020 Mid-America Open Champion, six-time U.S. Open and World Runner-Up, 19-time NWTF Grand National Senior Finalist. He has 20 state titles. He's won or placed in over 200 calling contests. He has 44 consecutive years of having won or placed in a contest. He is an original Jury Outdoors cast member, so he's been with the juries, I guess, since the late 1980s. Uh, he was host of Whitetail Revolution, host of Buckman TV, and host of Hunter Specialist Primetime Videos. And that is a lot of accomplishments. And you see people come and go in anything. It doesn't matter what walk of life it is, and everybody dips their toe in the water, and they do a little bit, and they give, give their effort, but then they're out of it. You see very few people that have done something like this since the 1970s, and that's awful impressive. And I, you and I have to be close the same age. But I remember you on the very first videos that, that you were ever on, back when VHSs were around, I think June 1st is when a lot of those were released. I'd always take a day off on June 1st, and I'd go home and get my mail, you know, when it come in, and watch, take the whole day and pop some popcorn. I'd watch Jury Outdoor videos or Hunter Special, whatever was out, and you were on a ton of those. And so I feel like, felt like I knew Steve Stoltz, and I'm sure a lot of people did too, but the thing that, to me, that I gained from watching you after reading all those things is really none of that. Now, again, I, we haven't met, so I could be completely wrong, Steve. But the thing that, that I really got from watching you were not the accolades, the things that you've done or things that you killed, but just seemed like a heck of a great guy, like a guy lived next door that would help you do anything at any time. And I was talking, uh, had a fellow that I used to work with named Michael Selman. I think Michael spent some time with you at the lake. Maybe he's, he's married to, to Laura Lurk, which would be Jared and uh, Justin Lurk's sister. And so yes. I, I, I told him, I said, hey, I'm having a podcast today with somebody you might know. And he said, Steve Stoltz is one of the nicest, most genuine people. I'm reading this quote here I've ever met. It always strikes me how warm and considerate he is toward Miss Lucille every time he's around her. The amount of time he takes with her is just remarkable. And so that's what I got out of watching you all those years. Now, obviously the knowledge of turkey hunting, deer hunting, all that's there, but you see, just a, just a nice gentleman. So again, that may not be true, but that's what I saw. That's what I saw. <laughs> so hey, thank you for thank you again for taking the time to to be with us. Shed, you got anything you want to add to that intro? 
I know all the stuff behind the scenes when <laughs> once it gets about nine o'clock at night, what goes on. Well, I, From the old, I can tell you the bourbon's involved in a little of it. Not every <laughs> night, but <laughs> Shed is uh, and I go way back, as a matter of fact, uh, Shed's grassroots with Mossy Oak, camouflage and Shed and I have been on hunts together, so I, I guess that's a good question to maybe ask Shed because uh, you, you really you don't know somebody till you spend a, a, a long time with them in hunting camp, and, and Shed and I have done that quite a bit, actually. Yeah, it's a good place to find out who somebody is, and most folks right. in, in hunting and deer camps are pretty, or turkey camps are pretty darn good people. You learn, learn a lot about them. And, you know, your time with, I, I've told Shed this and told that to a few people probably on here, but, you know, Mossy Oak and Injury Outdoors, I... I went to college last couple of years down in, down in Cape. A buddy of mine was roommates with with Mark Drury, and I didn't know who Mark was, but I was heard about this guy get starting these turkey calling contests. And so one day for lunch, go over to to their house, and Mark wasn't there, but his buddy told me, "Hey, pull him covers back and look what he's got in the covers." I said, I'm not pulling this man's covers. He said, "Pull them back." And there was either four or five shotguns there that he had won from turkey calling contests, is what his buddy Doug there had said, and. Then, Beside the bed, there was a box, and it was the first time I saw Mossy Oak camouflage. And he said, hey, he's starting to kind of go door-to-door peddling this camouflage. And he said, take some of it. And I said, I'm not going to steal this camouflage. I wish now I would have, because that was some of the original original stuff. Oh, yeah. But that's when I first heard Mossy Oak and, and Mark Drury. And of course, that's way back before the Internet. But I always tried to, to follow Mark, especially once he got started. And, and you had that connection from the beginning. And tell us, if you would, about that's early start with Jury Outdoors and uh, being with them and kind of how you and Mark connected and developed that relationship. Well, it, it, it started with, it all starts with uh, this right here, turkey call. And so I had begun my turkey calling career, career in 1979 uh, by my dad took me to my first turkey calling contest. I wasn't, didn't have any aspirations to compete I didn't have any aspirations to be in the outdoor industry. I didn't have any aspirations, none other than, than kill turkeys and deer, really. And my dad took me to my first calling contest and told me when we went, he said, there's a guy speaking at that calling contest by the name of Leroy Browngart. And, oh, Shed, you may remember that name. You may not. I don't remember. Uh, you know, He's an older gentleman that has passed away. But he was an icon in Missouri uh, back in the 60s and 70s for turkey calling. He was a pioneer in turkey calling instruction. That's why so many people in the Missouri and the Midwest knew of Leroy Brongart. And what got me to go to that contest was my dad told me Leroy would be given a seminar there. And I said, well, I want to go. I want to hear Leroy speak. Because a big, uh, I had a 45 record of, of Leroy and, and Colin. I had Roger Latham. I had uh, Dwayne Bland. I had a lot of the original pioneers in teaching turkey calling. Lynch, uh, you know, M.L. Lynch. Uh, I mean, the list, the list on of uh, the early, early, early. I mean, look, for a little boy uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, about all you'd ever see in turkey hunting was maybe an article in Field and Stream, maybe an article in Outdoor Life, and I'd wrap my whole my whole year around waiting for those articles to come out, read them, 
my dad was an accomplished turkey hunter, so he taught me the basics of turkey hunting, basics of turkey calling, and then I took it a notch above by listening to Leroy Brongart's record. And so going to see him at that seminar was a dream come true for me. About a day or two before we left for that calling contest, my dad said, uh, you got your calls? Bring your calls, turkey calls with you, your mouth calls. And I was about, oh, I'd say high school age, just coming out of high school. I said, well, how come, Dad? Why do you want me to bring my turkey calls? He said, I got some buddies that are going to be there. There's going to be a big crowd there. And I want my buddies to hear you turkey call. I want you to run. I think you're an exceptional caller, and I want them to hear you. And I said, okay, Dad, I'll bring them. So I had my little call case with my mouth calls in there. I brought them with me. Listened to the calling, uh, the seminar by Leroy Brungard. I was excited to listen to him, and to be honest with you, he was pretty long-winded. When he got done speaking, they said, okay, we're going to take a 10-minute break, and then we're going to go into the calling contest. And there was 30, 35 callers there, the best callers in the Midwest, and Shed can tell you some of the best turkey callers come from the mid, of course, the Midwest, the Deep South, and the Northeast, those three areas, uh, you, you just a ton of tremendously great turkey callers. And so I was listening to some of these turned out to be legends of turkey calling back then, calling and practicing. And I just, I, my mind was, I was like a kid in a candy store. I couldn't believe the sounds I was hearing. I couldn't believe that there was so many people in one place, uh, kind of like a mini grand, Na uh, mini national wild turkey federation convention. So I was just so happy and for completely forgot that I brought my calls with me. And uh, so they took the 10 minute break. My dad came up to me and said, do you have your calls with you? And I said, yep, right here, dad. Here's, here's my turkey calls. And I thought, well, this is the time he's going to have me demonstrate for those guys. But really be honest with you. I heard so many great callers calling so good practicing. And, and you, you can attest when you've been to a calling contest, that's all you hear is turkey calling. I said, yep, got, I got him. He said, good. He goes, cause I signed you up for the con contest. I said, what? And he said, yeah, I sign you up. You're calling in this thing. <laughs> I said, Dan, I can't call in this thing. He said, you're calling in it. I paid $5 for you to call. Back then in 1979, by golly, $5 is like $50 now. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do? I can't back out now. My dad wants me to compete in this contest. I didn't want to, I did not want to call. By golly, I did. And there was, I believe there was 32 callers in that calling contest, including the likes of Ray I, Brad Harris, Walter Parrott. Uh, the list goes on of, of legends in turkey calling. And I, I was fifth place in that contest, my very first contest I ever attended. So that, that catapulted me to the uh, a confidence level that I felt like, you know what? You can do this. By golly, you, you, you called with the best of the best, and you were fifth. Now, now start, start concentrating on winning, on being first place. It kind of springboarded from there. That's, that's how my turkey calling career took off, but, uh, and that's how I met Mark Drury. That, I'm going a long way around saying that I met Mark, Mark Drury at a calling contest. 
you know, fate would have it. Mark grew up in Missouri. He grew up about 30 minutes south of where I grew up. We had never met each other. And Mark called in the Missouri State Turkey Calling Contest, and I'm going to say the year was probably 1985. They took the top eight callers. Back then in major competition, they'd only take the top eight. They wouldn't take the top 12. I was in the top eight. Walter Parrott was in the top eight. Gary Williams, uh, Wayne Gendron. Uh, heck, I think even Dick Kirby was there that year. He was in the top eight. You know, just like I said, legends of turkey calling. And Mark Drury called, and I heard him call. I didn't know who he was. Skinny kid, long hair, big nose, <laughs> and uh, glasses, camouflage hat. Looked like a hippie to me. And uh, no, seriously. And I, I, I didn't know who he was, but he called with such emotion and such drive. And, I, and he did not make the cut. He did not make top eight. I don't know how far out of it he was, but he couldn't have been far because I was really impressed. Didn't know who he was. I was very impressed with his turkey call. So just being the person that I, I've always been, um, I tell it how it is. And at the contest was get between the preliminary round and the finals at the Missouri State. I happened to be in, with my group and Mark Drury was with his group and we were passing each other in the hallway at this hotel and again, I didn't know him from Adam. I just stopped up, stuck my hand out, shook his hand. I said, I don't know what your name is. And he said, my name's Mark Drury. And we shook hands. I said, just keep building on what you do. Don't change a thing of what you did today. Keep building on it. And he left. And I met Steve Stoltz. He shook my hand and said, I called fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Mark and I became friends from that day forward. And I end up uh, going to his house, and we end up uh, – actually, Lucille had me over for dinner, so, you know, I like to eat. And, and she had me down for dinner. We started practicing and building calls and cutting calls. And uh, next thing you know, I mean, I'm not saying I was solely responsible for it at all, but uh, I certainly – I'm sure I helped develop his calling skills to the point to where, I mean, it wasn't long because Mark's a very, and, and Shed can attest to this, Mark's probably one of the most intelligent individuals you'll ever meet, just by far. Um, and he's proven it in the outdoor industry. But he took his turkey calling level very quickly to the top. I mean, he was steadily, within a year or two, was beating me steadily, which I wasn't saying much, I guess. But uh, it was uh, amazing to see how quick he picked up on it and uh, how, how good he got and how, I mean, I had never placed in the Grand Nationals. I had been in the finals uh, several years before Mark kind of hit the picture, uh, hit the, uh, the scene, but he actually placed in the top five in the Grand Nationals before I ever did. That's, that's how quick he, he learned and became a competitive uh, championship caller. Now, Steve, I know you didn't appreciate it at the time, and I'm sure you were nervous when your dad put you in the contest, but looking, looking back now, especially at the age you are now, is probably close to the age he would have been then or so, maybe younger, but how does that make sure. you feel that the, how, the amount of confidence that he must have had in you or just the pride that he had in you that wanted to see that? How does that make you feel now looking back on that? Oh, I, my dad was my biggest fan. Without getting overly emotional, he's gone now. He, uh, he was a cigarette smoker, so he, he uh, got cardiovascular disease and, and passed away in his 70s, but... Yeah, I, I, I mean, the day 
Shed probably remembers this, the day that I won my first world turkey calling championship. I think I picked, Shed, I think I picked a good year to go to my first world in 1993 <laughs> because Shed can tell you back then they didn't have digital media. They didn't have social media. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have, uh, heck, they didn't even have uh, shows on television like they do now. Your press was, was gained by mostly by ink, by, by, by magazine, by outdoor writers. And so that year that Toxie brought the world to Birmingham, Alabama, was my first year I went to it. And Mossy Oak poured a lot of money into that contest. And it was close to 50 callers. I believe there was 47 callers in that first world championship that I ever went to. Second one that Mossy Oak had sponsored, and they had put a bunch of money in it. And Mark Drury himself was the one that talked me into going to it. He said, you have the calling skills to win the darn thing. And Mark had just won the previous year. So here, the previous world champion, my good friend, who I was ultimately in his wedding, a few years after we met for him and Tracy, I was in their wedding. He talked me into going to my first world turkey calling championship. I never thought I'd go to the Grand Nationals because I was going to the convention anyway. I would call in it, and I always wanted to win the Grand Nationals as well. But uh, I always dreamed of winning a world championship, but I, I just never thought that I would ever do any good. Mark said, you need to go. So I, I went, and my first year was 93, and end up actually tying Walter Parrott for first beat him in a call-off, which Walter Parrott very seldom ever got beat in a call-off. Some would probably say if they listened to it that Walter beat me. Who knows? But the judges picked me that, that year, and I won my first world turkey calling championship. I can't tell you how that catapulted my calling career and just my image in the outdoor industry by winning that one major turkey calling championship by virtue of the outdoor riders that wanted to hunt and interview me, the radio shows, television, it, it was it was nonstop. Uh, I, I went on almost like a seminar whistle stop tour doing radio shows because I won that world championship because Mossy Oak did such a great job with PR after that calling championship uh, about the world turkey calling championship. And so I just happened to p pick a great year to win it. You know, it was one of those, it was my time, I guess. I take some credit for that but i was still a high school man <laughs> yeah. yeah but but i'll i'll guarantee you shed you heard much about it and oh yeah uh, you were part of that grassroots family that kept that calling championship and turkey calling for that matter mossy oak and toxie hayes has a and you shed and all you guys had a great big hand in keeping turkey calling championships alive and bringing them to where they're at today by uh, installing the credibility, the notoriety, the PR, the press, and uh, getting the sponsors to, to pour the money into it. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, here we are today, uh, fast forward to 2023, and I'm still doing it. <laughs> and Steve, how does that, when you started 1979, here it is, 2023, so I'm sure calling and everything has changed, maybe guys, 50 years ago that might not even place today. I, I don't know, you know, different eras, different things, things change. How has that helped you over the course of that time? And is there anybody else like you that's done that, 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 that has stayed the course? Cause you've had to see a bunch of people just come and go over that amount of time. 
you know, uh, Van, it's a great question. Um, I, I kind of feel like the Forrest Gump of turkey calling, um, if that makes sense. I mean, really, I was able to compete with the Dick Kirby's and the Walter Parrots and the Paul Butskys and the Rom Brothers. In fact, my first Grand National that I ever attended was in Orlando, Florida in 1982. And I flew down there with Ray I and his dad, Joe, and his brother, Marty. And Ray and I become good friends. In fact, I met Ray at my first calling contest, and I'll tell that story here in a bit because it's really a cool story. And Ray I is a wonderful icon in this turkey hunting and calling industry. But at that first Grand Nationals, they took, again, the top eight, and there was, oh, probably 30-something callers in it. And they said, there's a tie. There's, they said, there's a tie between caller number... I don't know, 12 and caller number 24. And I was caller number 12. I couldn't believe I was in a tie, but the tie was for the call, was a call off to make the cut. And I was tied with none other, none other than Grand National Hall of Famer, Terry Rom. And I just couldn't believe it. I, I could not believe I was tied with Terry Rom. I read so much about him, heard so much about him, heard him call. I, had, I went and listened to him and Robbie Rom call because I'd never heard him call before. And here I was tied with him, and, it, and, he, and he beat me in a call-off. But I was just tickled silly that I was able to tie Terry Rom for a call-off. Didn't make any difference if I didn't make the cut. It just made, made my grand, first Grand National ever. But I was able to do that. Uh, you know, again, your your the, the legends, the 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 callers, the the Kelly Coopers, Skeet Thomas, Walter Parrott, Shane Hendershot, Jim Pollard, Chris Parrish, Mark Drury himself. I mean, the list goes on of the people that I've uh, through the years been able to compete with. Now, modern day, you know, Matt Van Sice and Dave Owens and Scott Ellis, and I mean, the list goes on and on of modern day turkey calling icons and to be able to witness that and see it and compete with them and actually get scores comparable to them sometimes win sometimes lose is uh you look back it's 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 kind of amazing but no there there's probably nobody else that has done that maybe keith wallach good friend of mine from missouri shed knows keith keith has been competing since uh 1979 as well he doesn't compete as much but he was in the top five in the grand nationals uh, I know at least once, and he's he's a, he was a top competitor for a long time, and he's still competing. So yeah, there are a few that are still competing, but probably none uh, as far as bringing it to the level that I've been able to bring it to. I know this past year I was able to make, I think my 19th final in a Grand National, and I made my first final in 1986. And again, without getting emotional, in 1986, I was able to uh, make my first finals in the Grand Nationals. And I think they had switched to the top 12 that year or a year or two, right in there. And that particular year, uh, I called and they said, there's a tie once again. Um, now my first finals in the Grand Nationals, it took me four or five years to make my first cut. I'm in the finals, I call, felt like I called. I was very happy with what I did on stage. They said, okay, there's a, there's a tie. Caller number six and caller number 11. I was caller number six. And guess who caller number 11 was? And Shed knows this gentleman. We all do. 
none other than Mr. Bob Dixon. So there I am tied for fifth place. I didn't know this. Well, I was just tied with Bob Dixon. And um, I, I walked up to Bob. Bob. Bob and I knew each other. And I walked up to Bob, and I, he said, good luck, man. And I said, good luck to you. We went and called, and I called my brains out. He, he called his brains out. He beat me. He came up later and shook my hand. He said, man, he goes, that's some good call. He goes, I, I don't know how they determined the winner of that one. He said, man, you called great. I, I, so I was sixth in that Grand Nationals, and I was never, fast forward uh, years later, I was never so happy to lose a tie to, to one of the greatest persons in the outdoor industry. I'm, again, I'm trying not to get emotional, that I've ever met. I love Bob, and I'm so happy that that was one of the times that he placed in the top five in a Grand National and deserved it because he was a turkey calling fool and, and a turkey killing machine and just a great, great guy with, with a big heart. And so I'm very proud that, that my first Grand National final I tied with the, the legendary Bob Dixon. I bet so. And you, you're that iconic status in, in the turkey calling contest competitions, and you've been that for a while. I'm sure anything that you take seriously, you probably get some nerves before you start. But how was it back then when you step up there and your dad's kind of rushed you into it? You look left and right, and here's all these people you've read about in the Outdoor Life and Field and Stream magazines, which we got back then, and now you're right there with them. Do you handle that pretty well, or do you get, or does the nerves get you? The nerves still get you. I think probably one of the things that I suffer, had suffered from through the years is all your listeners that, that are out there listening to this podcast right now, one of the things that's always helped me is I've always listened to live turkeys. I listen to live turkeys live. I listen to recordings. I listen to some of the early audio recordings. Now you have all kinds of digital media. You can go on YouTube. You can go anywhere and get live turkeys. But I always try to bring my calling to several particular live hens. I never, ever tried to make my calling sound like another turkey caller. And I think some of your top callers, that's uh, even today, we'll tell you, your Matt Van Sices and Dave Owens and all your top, uh, Josh Grossenbacher, I'm trying to think of J.R. Lanham, some of the guys that were in the top, Mitchell Johnston, they'll all tell you that they listen to live turkeys. So you've got to be your own turkey. So, yeah, but the nerves are always there uh, for me. It's weird because contests, and Shed can tell you this, contests can sometimes be a number game where you could call very good but can call early and get sometimes get missed especially when you got 40 or 50 something callers in a preliminary round so i get almost more nervous drawn number reaching in what number am i going to get am i going to get caller number two am i going to get caller number you know five you know out of out of 50 callers so pulling a, a drawn numbers was made me more nervous what kept me from being nervous on the stage is i would always been able to go out and just drown out the crowd, drown out the, the noise, and just think of how I think a, a real live hen does it. And that's why a lot of times you'll see me and other people, uh, when we're calling, we'll actually, our hand, and we're not using our hand, we don't do that hunting, obviously, but we're using it for a timing thing because we want to be perfect, and we want to be perfect rhythms with how live turkeys do it. And turkeys have rhythm. And if you learn anything from this podcast, other than the history of turkey calling right now, is that if you learn proper turkey rhythm, 
you will be a more successful turkey caller. Steve, I know you obviously because of your success, you've had the opportunity to hunt with a lot of iconic people. Of course, Terry Drury, Mark Drury, and I know you had to have hunted with Stan Potts on some of those because he was on a lot of those same videos with you. Is there is there one hunting uh, moment or hunt that you went on with? Maybe it wasn't those guys; it was somebody else that is a really interesting story, something that you might be willing to share with us that just comes to mind, whether it was something humorous or something that meant a lot to you, whatever it may have been. Well, my gosh, there's so many. I'll be honest with you, I couldn't remember. One, one thing, one hunt that does come to mind is funny as heck. Well, I was hunting with Mark and Terry Drury. And what, in the early years of Drury Outdoors, it was obvious we would film each other. So sometimes I'd film with Terry, sometimes I'd film with Mark. Just depend on who we were with, where we were at, what we had going on. And a lot of times, Mark and Terry, if Mark and Terry were sharing the same camp, they liked going together. They liked filming each other. Now, that that kind of has ended now, fast forward. <laughs> you know, because they're brothers, of course. And brothers are going to fight, right? Well, one day, we were, in, we were in southern Iowa, and we were bow hunting. And <laughs> Mark and Terry was filming each other. And I was, I was with another cameraman. I can't remember if I was with... Dale Whiffler or Dave Reisner, I was with a different cameraman, and Mark and Terry got in an argument in a tree. But back then, they were in two separate trees, and Shed probably can remember this, sometimes you'd film, Hunter would get in one tree and a cameraman would get in another tree. Of course, that was kind of a mistake. We found out that you don't want to be in two different trees filming. But back then, uh, Mark was in one tree, and Terry was in the other, and apparently, I get it. I'm thinking Terry was hunting and Mark was filming and it was a good buck coming down this bluff. We were actually on the old pigeon farm, which Lee Lakoski and Tiffany, Tiffany Lakoski end up buying, perching. This was their first farm they ever purchased years later, but we hunted it before they purchased it. And we were on the bluff. Mark was filming and wanting Terry to bang the horns together to get this buck to make up another 80 yards so it would come you know close enough obviously for a shot and this buck apparently was kind of traveling where he wasn't going to come anywhere near a bow shot so mark kept prodding terry hey w without yelling to him bang those horns together and finally terry apparently i don't know what terry's reasons were why he didn't want to call to the deer maybe he didn't want the deer to get downwind of him uh you know terry's a phenomenal deer hunter so terry knows what he's doing as well so terry didn't want to call mark wanted him to call and finally mark just yelled out why don't you call to this deer and that just made terry so mad and terry start yelling at mark and mark start yelling at terry and they're yelling at each other <laughs> you can hear them in the woods yelling at each other and Terry was getting ready to get down out of the tree and then climb up the tree to have a fight with Mark. That's, that's, that was the, I thought, I, and that they had the camera rolling the whole time. When I saw that video, when we got back to camp, I thought I would die laughing. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. But yeah, that was uh, uh, early stories of uh, Drury Outdoors filming. No question. Probably a good thing they weren't in the same tree on that one, wasn't it? <laughs> It's a good thing they weren't in the same tree, because Mark will tell you to this day, he thought Terry was going to get down and kill him. 
Hey, Steve, with, with turkey season just, you know, just around the bend here and getting close and folks getting excited and especially some of these temperatures starting to make you feel like it's, it's getting there. Take us to basically it's opening day and what do you do as far as locating turkeys in the morning? You know, if you were able to, to roost one that evening, how do you go about it in the morning? How, you, how do you locate that, that turkey or that gobbler if you have it already? Well, you know, obviously trying to roost one the night before is the best. You know, I, I think probably this would be a good uh, seg segue into uh, on hunting tactics is I just think uh, scouting and locating is a, is a, is a very over uh, overlooked tool in, in turkey killing practices. I'm not saying that calling techniques doesn't kill a lot of turkeys too in woodsmanship, but man, if you get to know your turkeys, what they're doing, where they're roosting, where they're spending time, the uh, rest of the day after they get off to roost, where they're liking to roost in the evening, where they're liking to hang before they go to roost, all their habits uh, that they have throughout the day, and they don't do the same thing every day, but they'll, you know, if they're not being disturbed, they'll pretty much roost in the same area every every evening in the spring. So the better you know what those turkeys are doing, the better chance you got of killing those turkeys, because let's face it, they're not gobbling all the time. And in fact, I'd say if I put a percentage on it, 90 five percent of the day they're not gobbling they really only gobble a certain small period in the morning and then they shut up uh so you gotta uh, know those know those turkeys really well on where they're hanging if i don't if i hit an area that i'm not familiar with i try and make sure i go to roost put one to bed make one gobble now that don't always work either but there is an art to roosting there definitely is and I always take it one step further. If I get one to roost, I'll try and actually move in on him and, and figure out what exact tree he's in. That means keeping them gobbling with an owl hooter, crow call, turkey call, if you have to, turkey sounds, until you can pinpoint exactly what tree he's in. And then I'll wait till it's pitch dark to then back back out. And usually then you're in a way better position to try and kill him coming off the roost the next morning. But be careful when you go back the next morning. In fact, when you're in there tight on a turkey, pretty tight where you know about what tree he's in, but you're not, you've not spooked him, you've, you've kept him gobbling, you want to almost count your steps out to a logging road or to a edge of a field so you have depth perception going back in to the same spot the next morning because you can darn sure uh, mess up and, and, and get too close and bump them off the roost. What is your ideal closeness that you try to get? I, li I like to be within 100 yards or less. I want to be the first hen that that gobbler hears to make him think he needs to come to me first before he goes to any other hen. Morning comes and you've, you've roosted him, you know where he's at, you get in there in that 100 yards or a little less, whatever you can get to safely. What do you do then as far as your calling? Are you waiting on him or, or do you initiate it and get him going yourself? I, I, well, that's a great question. I typically, I, I'm going to uh, sidebar here. One, one of my greatest teachers ever, and Shed remembers this gentleman too, was, was Eddie Moyers. And Eddie has passed away since, and he was my turkey hunting buddy for many, many, many years. Um, but Eddie always taught me, so Eddie was from Southeast Missouri. He was an icon in turkey killing. I mean, he was a turkey killer. Um, and I always said, Eddie, my dad taught me how to hunt turkeys. Eddie taught me how to kill them. Because Eddie would know what a turkey wanted to do before it 
knew what it wanted to do. It was amazing how he knew what turkey, he grew up in the woods. He, his dad taught him how to turkey hunt. He was a avid turkey uh, hunter. He went out of state turkey hunting and killed turkeys out of state, out of Missouri, uh, in the deep south, before Missouri ever had a first turkey season. In fact, Eddie was in the first, I think, 10 individuals, or maybe the first five individuals that ever checked a turkey in the first year Missouri had a Missouri turkey season. Eddie just knew turkeys. And I got the chance to hunt with Eddie. And once I got to hunt with him, I didn't stop hunting with him. And anytime he asked me to go, I went with him. And Eddie always said that most people never pay attention to spit and drum. The spit and drum is a, is a sound that really you don't hear a lot about. You don't hear a lot of written about. You've hear there's been some calls made to imitate the spit and drum, and there's you hear some people do it with their voice, but really the spit and drum is a huge tool to listen to as far as where a gobbler is, whether he's gobbling or not. And so I like to get close enough to be able to hear him spit and drum. And if you can hear him spitting and drumming. By golly, you're darn sure close enough. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, hear that. I can't hardly ever hear that. Well, and Shed, that's because it's a it's a low hertz level sound. Kind of goes like <laughs> and uh, Don Ship used to do it the best. Remember old Big Daddy Don Ship? Uh, I mean I have but heard it before. But yeah, yeah. But a lot of times I- Ten feet away. A lot of times what you'll hear, your hearing will pick up is that, that back end of it, that <clears throat> if you can hear, and, and unfortunately, Shed, you may be one that have lost your hertz, your hertz level has been lost at that level. Uh, many people lose their, I've just been blessed that for whatever reason, I can hear, I can hear a darn turkey spitting and drumming it. 150 yards for some stupid reason. Yeah, I, I lost mine a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'll hear them, I'll hear them spitting and drumming. And many times they're coming in quiet and I'll hear that drumming and I'll know exactly what where to point the gun and whether it's circle around behind me just by that spit and drum. You can't I can't tell you how many times that I have roosted a turkey and set up on them the next morning and never gobble one time but I hear him spitting and drumming in a limb. I know he's still there. And I treat it as if he's gobbling. I tree call him, let him fly out of limb. I listen for him to hit the ground, start calling more aggressively to him. A lot of times then he'll start gobbling or maybe just come in quiet. But but that's by knowing that spit and drum sound, I was able to kill that turkey. Yeah, they will. They'll spit and drum on the limb then, Steve. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Now, it- Probably more so in the limb than any other time. Now, what are, yes. they, what are they trying to communicate there? Is there anything specific they're trying to communicate with that, or does it have no meaning? Great Uh-oh. question. <laughs> I'm no biologist, but the world, according to Steve Stoltz, and I don't know, 50 years of turkey hunting, is that I think they're trying to attract hens without having to gobble. So a turkey knows, a turkey's smart, man. They're smart birds. They can see well, and they can hear well. And they know that predators are out there constantly, 24-7, that love turkey meat. Okay, bobcats love turkey. Coyotes love turkey. There's a lot of predators out there who love turkey. And the more they gobble, the more a lot of times that they get interaction with predators, with predation. So that spit and drum 
and my opinion is Mother Nature's way of them attracting hens to breed without having to even gobble. So they're doing it as a function. A biologist may tell you a whole different story, but the world according <laughs> to me is they're putting those sounds out and those hens will find those gobblers without them even gobbling it if need be, if need be. Now, once you hear that or once you're hearing them gobble, how long are you waiting before you communicate back? Or are you, you going to let him eat on the ground? Or are you going to try to make sure he knows you're there before? And do you, and do you wait as close to when he's going to get down to roost? If you can anticipate that as you can, is it best to hold out? I'm big on letting a gobbler make his move. I want to know what he is wanting to tolerate and what he's wanting to hear. So I try and let a turkey gobble on his own if I can. If he doesn't gobble on his own, I'm going to try and make him gobble with an owl hooter. If that don't work, then I'm going to try and make him gobble with soft tree calling. Once he answers my calling, I do very little calling. I want him to, to seek me out. So all I need to do is get an answer from him by tree calling him a little bit. And he, if he cuts my tree calling off and acts like he's ready to work, then I usually just shut up and wait for him to fly down. And it drives them nuts. It will drive them nuts. The less you call, the more they'll gobble. So I'm, I'm not a, I don't over, I don't overcall turkeys. And I don't really think in some sense of the word, you can overcall them other than if you're calling too much when you're too close, they'll pinpoint where you're at and know there's no hen standing there. So you've got to be careful with them. So give them just enough to get excited and then let him make his next move. Now, if you get some some hens and while they're on the roost and you you can hear them tree calling a little bit, do you, do you compete with them? Do you try to talk louder than them, if you will, to like you're more ready, so he's more interested in you, or how do you handle that? I will. That? Um, I don't know if I can call. I don't know if this is going to blow your mic out. I, I'm not going to call real loud. But one of the things you asked about is uh, in when we talked about doing a podcast is some of my techniques and calling techniques and what I think people maybe are overlooking in turkey calling. Mm -hmm. Well, I think most people in turkey calling are overlooking the no call and the soft call because no calling can kill a lot of turkeys at the right time and so can soft calling. And a lot of people want to focus on that loud, aggressive cutting and excited hen yelping and biting purr and all this loud stuff, fly down cackle. Well, you'll kill more turkeys if you just work on the soft stuff more my personal opinion. And so what I try and do is just do a little tree call, which a tree call is nothing other than a, a whistle yelp, what I call a whistle yelp. The mechanics that you're doing when you kiki, only you put little little yelps in it like this. I'm doing is just with the mouth call. That's all I'm doing. I'm not trying to yelp with it. I'm not trying to uh, get aggressive with it, uh, but that's a real pretty light sound. If he cuts that off, you don't have to call anymore. He knows where you're at. He's probably going to pitch out your direction. He's probably going to want you to come to him because that's natural for a gobbler to want the hen to come to him. Okay. So you're going against mother nature by trying to call a turkey up in the first place. So 
if you're close to him, as we mentioned, he's in the limb, and he cuts you off goblin, then you're probably better off to just shut the calling down until he flies out and hits the ground. And then once he hits the ground, you want to do the more aggressive calling. Give him a fly-down cackle, more start hen yelping a little louder uh, to get him to come your direction. He sounded good, didn't he, Shit. <laughs> What's that? I said you sounded awful good. Hence the oh, 44 oh, years yeah. of competition, oh. national or grand national championships. I, I'll take it one step further. What I, I, I think in the in the video Sound of Spring, I was uh, fortunate enough. Mark gave me the cluck and purr duties for Sound of Spring. I've had so many people over the years. That that video was made in the early 90s. I have so many people, including Matt Van Sison, most most decorated turkey caller in the history of turkey calling now, my, uh, Matt Van Size can't, can't tell you how good this man, I mean, he's a turkey. He's a wild turkey. He came up to me one time and, and told me that I taught him how to cluck and purr, which is amazing uh, <laughs> when you think about it. But what I do is I just put a call in my mouth, and I use my tongue and flutter my tongue. <laughs> Only with a call. But I, then I sound chamber it. Seems easy to me, I guess. Yeah. But that's all I'm doing is doing that tongue flutter. But I'm, I'm fluttering my, I guess, big fat cheeks, if you want to call it that. I don't know. It, it looks easy, it sounds easy, but I know that if, if I try to do what you just did, it, it wouldn't sound that way. You make it you make it look very easy. I, I've hunted with a lot of those guys that, that Steve's talking about. Whenever I go with them, I just let them do the call. And then harass them when we don't kill the bird. Because I don't need to embarrass myself. Well, look, Chad, I'm telling you, I know you can call good. I've been with you, but uh, all, all you guys can. Look, there's a difference between... Yeah, if your calling skills are high, you're going to kill probably maybe even more turkeys. But woodsmanship and basic mechanics of calling and knowing when to call and when not to is, is all it really is. And rhythms, rhythm, 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 rhythm. I always say, if you take a if you take a turkey call, take a box call. I hope this don't blow it out. You take a box call. That's that's bad turkey rhythm, man. Yeah. A darn turkey's going to hear that and go. What in the world? But if you take that same calling, see the difference? Yeah. So turkey rhythm is everything in turkey calling. But yeah, I, I, and Chet, I'm the same as you, by the way. If I'm with somebody that's calling, I don't care whether they're a champion caller or they're a, a guy that just kills turkeys and knows how to uh, call. If that turkey's keying in on his sound, on that person's sound, I like eating fried turkey breast too much. I don't care how we get the turkey in. <laughs> now, Steve, when that when that sucker hits the ground and say you called perfect like you just did, but he goes another direction, maybe it's he's got hens or maybe he just whatever reason. What do you do then? You you let him go and go find another one, or you you stay after him? Well, it depends. Um, certainly, I'll I'll stay after him if that's the only game in town. Pay attention. For everybody that's listening, pay attention to what's gobbling around you. And Eddie Moyers taught me that more than anybody else. 
is you have got to take inventory of your turkeys when they're gobbling at their peak. So right before it starts breaking daylight, they start gobbling a limb and then you hear, you may hear multiple turkeys. Hopefully you do if you're in a spot, Scott turkeys and start taking inventory where these turkeys are. Eddie always taught me depth perception, something not written about. If I ever do it, I probably should do a book. I don't know. Uh, Cuz Strickland did a book a long time ago and it's one of the best selling books. I mean, what a great read. But I, I, I don't think I'm as talented as Cuz Strickland to write a darn book. But my point is this, depth perception is one of the most overlooked tools in turkey hunting. And the reason why is because you have to know depth perception to know how far the turkey is, what terrain is between you and the turkey, and what you need to do to enact a game plan to set up for that turkey. So, you know, depth perception is, is huge. And I, I think that when a, when a turkey gobbles and, 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 it, and it's open, or they sound like they're closer than they really are because it's wide open. A lot of times when it gets thicker, they sound like they're further away and they're not, they're closer. So you've got to learn those, those little tricks to be more successful with calling turkeys. Steve, in your, in your vest, what, what type besides diaphragm calls, what types of calls do you have with you? I always have box, pot calls, friction calls, and my mouth calls. And when I say mouth call, I, have a, I, have a, I usually have a package of a whole uh, snuff can of mouth calls, and I like to rotate my mouth calls, keep them fresh. Uh, so I'll bring six or eight different mouth calls with me and I'll switch into new ones. Sometimes a turkey will key in on one call and not another. So you got to be, uh, diversity is the thing. Sometimes I'll be mouth calling and, and not get an answer, switch to a box call and they'll cut it off. And sometimes vice versa. I'll be calling with a box call, trying to locate with a box call, nothing, switch to a mouth call and boom, no gobble. So you don't know what is going to kind of turn their crank, if that's a good way to put it. Different mouth calls sound different. So sometimes just changing a mouth call will spur interest in a turkey that wasn't, that other calls weren't weren't, uh, spurring interest on, if that makes sense. When you're calling in a contest, how do you gauge which mouth call you like the best that, that you think sounds the best? And then do you keep using that same call? for multiple contests or is it kind of blown after you call with it once? That's a great, great question, uh, Shed. Leading up to the Grand Nationals of 2023 last week, uh, the convention, I had went to Hannibal, Missouri and won. I won that contest, the All-American Open. Um, So the old man, boom, 44 years now, 44 44 years, I have uh, won or placed in a calling contest 44 straight years since 1979. And uh, that is a particular thing that I'm, I'm just so proud of. But in that contest, Shed, I ran a set of uh, uh, calls and I, I liked the way I yelped and the judges did too, because I won, but I wanted to go to Nashville with maybe even a little bit better yelp. So I, I kept uh, building, I got uh, Woodhaven tape and frames and material and I, I build you know I build my own calls a lot of times and I got to building and do you know the Yelper that I did so well in Nashville which I was I made the cut and end up seventh just a few point points from the top five 
I'm not going to say it was my caller number, but uh, could have been my caller number. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, I was I was happy with my sounds, and I shed I built that turkey call literally the day before I, I left for Nashville at the firehouse. I was at the fire station. I'm still a full-time firefighter. I am retiring later this year, so I'm going to end that career, and I've been doing that for actually uh, almost as long as I've been turkey calling. I've been a firefighter for 42 years, and anyway, I built that call shed brand new. I went to the Woodhaven booth on Thursday, and I had it in my call pack I knew it sounded good, and I, I thought I felt like it sounded even better than the one I had won at Hannibal with. And I ran it, start running it at the booth right after the show opened on Thursday. And Scott Ellis was standing there, and so was Billy Argus. And you can't get two better ears than those two. And Billy Argus, or actually Scott Ellis, said to me, "What call is that?" I got it out and said, "I just built it. It's a, it's my modified cutter." And he said. You need to run that call tomorrow. If you don't run that call tomorrow, you're nuts. And I said, I'll I'll run that call tomorrow. I, I, I was hoping I'd hear some feedback like that. Calls uh, will change. They will go out. If you take care of a call, it's a great question. You can have a call last for years. If you rinse it off, let it air dry. I take a toothpick. I'll show you right here. And I'll take and I'll slide that toothpick between the top. I'm doing it, but I'll show you the end result. I between the top, top read and and second read, just a flat toothpick. One toothpick, even if you got three reads, four reads, don't make any difference. Two reads, just one toothpick between the top read and the second read, because that's your sound. Your top read is your soundboard. Okay, I hope you can see that. So your top read is your soundboard. There you go. Once you wet the call and move that toothpick side to side, now your read's separated, and you can put the call in your mouth without making mistakes. There you go. Do you keep the? Do you have brand new, fresh diaphragm calls? And you probably do, I guess, for each year. Or, do you store them? Do you put them in the freezer or anything like that during all season? I do. I, I, I will keep uh, calls that really, really sound good. My top calls, I'll rinse them off. I'll let them air dry, usually overnight. They go in a special call case. I got a mark, number one, and then a call case number two. Those I got two complete sets of Yelpers, Kiki Run, Cluck and Purr, Fly Down, and those calls I'll save for my next competition. And until I sit down like I did last week before Nashville, and until I build a better sounding call, those stay in my number one cases. And and I, I'll put I store them in a refrigerator. Latex and prophylactic store very well and last a long time. If you keep them rinsed and get all your bacteria off of them and uh, keep them clean and air dry, they'll last sometimes many years. I've had some calls, uh, I've had a, a Kiki run call that actually just went out on me this year that I ran for, I'd say, three or four years, and I hated that it went out on me, but that particular Kiki run call, I was pulling from most judges 19s and, and 20s with that call. So, yeah. 
you can lock in on your favorite mouth calls and you you treat them very 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 uh, very well but that being said that's the beauty of building my own calls with Woodhaven material is um, I can also sit down if I need something if a, if a call goes out on me and I need to build a call to replace it I can do that right away now do you leave when you're storing those do you, do you leave that toothpick in there for that yes. during that amount of time yes okay I rinse them off in tap water I towel dry them, put the toothpick between the reed and let them air dry with the toothpick between the reed. And I recommend, okay, so let's talk about, not everybody's gonna be out there competing and trying to win world and grand national championships. The everyday hunter, the turkey killer, all the people that are listening to this need to do the same thing because you'll, you'll keep that call crisp and better sounding every day in the turkey woods if you let it dry up, air dry, rinse it off and let it dry up and have it nice and fresh and crisp and completely dry the next day, you'll get better performance out of that mouth call. And you'll keep that call a lot longer. Many people will really, really, really treat their mouth calls terrible. They'll leave them in their call pack wet with that bacteria and saliva in their vest. And then in the heat of, the, of a tr say a vehicle or a truck or in the sun or whatever. And those calls just lose their life really quick when you treat them like that. And I'd, I'd have to think too with that bacteria, and if you had a cold or were sick at some point, six months later when you got to die, there's your chance you're going to get that again. I mean, Absolutely. It, it would stay in yes. there. Steve, what is yeah. your what is your weapon of choice? What's your shotgun? What's your setup? What scope do you like? Or red dot if you use that? Or, or open sights? What shells do you do you use? Well, it's no great secret on the Drury Outdoors films in the early years, I missed a lot of turkeys. So, and you know, Shed will tell you, if you miss turkeys, that just means you're turkey hunting a lot. But Mark Drury is the one that kind of straightened me out on hitting what I was aiming at with, with turkeys. And that's that's when I actually put a red dot on my shotgun and, and sighted it in. So what I my go-to outfit right now, I'll just tell you, is an Indian Creek choke. I use a Benelli 20 gauge. I shoot a Benelli M2 because I'm now old and I don't want to carry around the extra weight. And with a Benelli M2 and an Indian Creek choke and, a, and an optic, a red dot optic, you can be just as effective killing with those guns as you can a 20 gauge. You can shoot them just as far and just as effectively. Turkeys will die just as quick with that 20 gauge with the right load and uh and sighted in so my my shell of choice is apex number nine shot i love a nine shot i like the more shot with that tss shot you're going to kill them at the same distance you would at a 12 just as effectively and i mean they drop and don't flop so why carry around the extra weight i carry a lighter gun now it's in mossy oak from head to toe mossy oak leaf which is my favorite spring pattern the old original mossy oak green leaf and uh, that's the gun i'm gonna they'll they may find me dead with that gun in my hands i don't know <laughs> i take the old tungsten's and that's impressive isn't it unbelievable because here's the deal it's it the tungsten whether it's apex or any other uh brand it carries the the muzzle velocity downrange at at the same rate that la 12 gauge would with copper shot so you're killing turkeys. If you have happen to shoot a turkey at 45 yards, you have a 45 yard shot where in the early years, you would never think about that with a 20 gauge. Now you're killing, 
you're killing just as effectively with a 20 gauge as a 12 because of that that downrange impact level of that tungsten is just as effective for out of a 20 gauge or even a 410 for that matter as it is a 12. Now Steve your success turkey wise is also equal to your success as far as killing mature bucks you know I know that's you're not one or the other and some one or the other and some people are kind of like when we were young you love baseball was the greatest sport when baseball season was in and then it was basketball you know whatever it may be but you know you you do both of them at a high level and so if somehow spring turkey season someday as time evolved that november last few weeks of october november somehow that would blend together in a, in a magical world and you had to choose from opening day of turkey season or you just see a buck that you've been after and you get him in daylight on your camera. Are you going after the buck or are you going to the opening day of turkey season? Which one would you choose? Well, it, it, it depends on, I guess, the, the, the maturity of the buck because uh, <laughs> the older the buck is, the harder he is to kill. Don't make any difference about everybody's fixated on those inches of antlers. And uh, to be honest with you, inches of antlers is just what you are able to grow or have blessed in the area you're at. Like I'm, I'm here in Iowa. I, I live in Southeast Iowa. Uh, I moved from Missouri to Southeast Iowa to prepare for retirement, bought a farm. So I, I love it here. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm surrounded by big whitetails in Missouri, big whitetails as well. The answer to that question is I would take Turkey every time be bold face honest with you. If I had to give one up or the other, it would be whitetails. I got a feeling you'd call a turkey and kill him quick and get over there and hunt that deer too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to say now, if I'm onto a deer that I know very well and, and, and been watching uh, for years and, and he's, he's a you know, world-class type uh, animal, which sometimes I, I'm blessed to be able to hunt, then I might choose that whitetail over the turkey. But if, if I, And I think Mark Drury would even tell you himself, and Mark and I actually had the same conversation. <clears throat> Mark and I still do a lot of things together. We, uh, we have dinners together and you mentioned about, uh, Lucille and what a wonderful family to, you know, uh, I grew up with and, uh, love them all. And they're genuine, good, good, good people. Uh, but Mark and I had the same conversation not too long ago at over when we were having dinner. And, uh, the conversation was at our age, we both realized is, we hit a point where we love turkeys, love turkeys, and then we got into big whitetails. And anybody watched our films, the early Drury films, we learned how to kill big whitetails on film, literally. We, we weren't killing big deer when we first started doing that. We were killing the first buck that walked by, and then we graduated to kill the first maybe two-and-a-half-year-old that walked by. That's how we learned. So you and the people that watched us learned with us. We were, we were learning how to do it on film. So we brought it to the point, and who knew that uh, we would be able to bring it to the point that, that it is now, and I was not with them for a look, for actually quite a while, and I'm in awe of what Mark and Terry have done in the whitetail world. But uh, now I've joined forces back with them, which I'm very happy that I did, but we got to that whitetail point in the whitetail industry that we felt like, how are you going to achieve any more goals than what we what we had done? I'm not saying we've done everything, but we've certainly brought it to a you know set the bar to a very high level. Now, as we get older, we're finding we're enjoying turkey hunting more again, and 
both of us said that if we had to, if we had to give up one or the other from here and evermore, it would be whitetails. I would not, neither one of us would give up our turkey hunt, just so you know. <laughs> well, you don't go to competitions probably for 44 years straight if you're not highly dedicated and committed. Steve, what, uh, what does your upcoming season look like? How much will you be out in the woods and where all will you be going? Uh, I always start my season um, every year in the south, uh, typically either Florida, Alabama, or Mississippi. Typically, I've, st I've started my season before in South Carolina. But uh, to answer the question, good friend of mine, Tommy Bourne. And Chad, did you know Tommy? I know the name. With Tommy? Tommy Bourne was from Prentice, Mississippi. Anybody in Mississippi that's listening to this now probably remember Tommy, especially if you're a little older like me, Tommy was a sheriff's deputy. He was in the outdoor industry as well. Turkey caller, uh, grand national champion, owl hooter. Uh, he placed in the grand national owl hooting championships uh, one or two different years in his calling career. Tommy was tragically killed by a prisoner in 1997. In fact, it was the first year they had the world championship in Bessemer, Alabama. And Don Chip won that world championship, but Tommy was tragically killed. And I, before that, I had hunted turkeys every spring with Tommy since I met Tommy in the early 80s at the first Mississippi State's Gulf States Classic in Natchez, Mississippi. So, you know, again, here's the Forrest Gump stuff. Uh, I met Tommy at Natchez. Tommy invited me to come down after New Orleans the, Grand, the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation Convention in New Orleans, of which, by the way, Dick Kirby won that Grand Nationals. That was his first Grand National that he won. Tommy invited myself, Keith Wallig, and Drew Jones to come to Prentice to go turkey scouting. And we did, and we went out, listened to turkeys gobble, not far from uh, Nat Natchez, Mississippi. And ever since then, I've been going back down to Mississippi to turkey hunt with Tommy. After Tommy was killed, I couldn't go back down there. Couldn't do it. Didn't go back down there for 10 years. And then his buddies met up with me at Pearl, Mississippi at the U.S. Open Turkey Calling Championship in 2007, and they asked me to come back. And I've been going back ever since. We did a Tommy Bourne Memorial Hunt that year. We filmed it. We I don't know how many turkeys we killed on film. It was like we were hunting in North Missouri or Southern Iowa, but these Mississippi turkeys were coming in left and right. We were filming them out in the wide open it, it was un, it was like as if tommy was in heaven sending those turkeys to us and so ever since then i've been going to prentice mississippi to open my turkey season so that's where i'll be right after Miss, mississippi opens i think march 15th 16th somewhere like that from there i'll go back north and start hunting in missouri iowa and then i'll hunt tennessee and Right now, trying to work on a hunt in Kansas. So that's not uh, decided yet. So that's my plans this spring. Well, I'll tell you what, you made a smart move by moving to Iowa, didn't you? I mean, that's every... Oh, yeah. Yeah, what, what are the... And I probably hunt, shoot, I don't know, northern Missouri. I've got a lease there where I'm maybe 30, as a crow would fly, 30 minutes to the Iowa border. Man, you talk about night and day, though, from... <laughs> From where I'm at, from one side to the other, that southeast Iowa is just incredible. The richness in the dirt, you know, there's monster bucks here, and, and there are. I've been able to, to deer hunt there twice now, getting drawn, but you're going to be getting drawn every year because you live there. 
Yeah, right. I, I mean, I can buy you know tags obviously over the counter, mm-hmm. and I've been an Iowa resident for 12 years. I've just commuted back and forth because my fire department schedule allows me to be off two thirds of the year. So I literally spend two thirds of my year at my farm in Iowa. But when I retire full time this this summer, I'll I'll be there full time, obviously. You know, in 1990 when we started Drury Outdoors, actually 1989, uh, we wanted to do whitetails, so we started filming whitetails. And in 1990, Mark got an invite, Mark Drury got an invite to hunt Iowa. And he went to a public hunting area, I can't remember, in southern Iowa. And he saw big buck after big buck. And he called me. So the first one he called, I, he, I think he called me from a hotel in Iowa and said, Stevie, you have got to buy an Iowa tag and get up here and find a place to hunt. And uh, I'm like, Okay, I'm on it. So the uh, rest is history. I, I uh, contacted my brother. I said, I'm going on a road trip. We're going to go find some ground in Iowa, and we're going to start hunting Iowa. And back then, you could call the Iowa DNR and get a tag over the phone. It was not over the counter, but they never did sell out the number of tags that they sold. Now, isn't that something? It is. Today, you got to wait four or five years to draw a tag sure do. if you're a non-resident for Iowa. So crazy how... Uh, it's, uh, and I guess we've been a part of that by, by, of course, killing the good deer that we've yeah. killed both in Illinois and Iowa and in North Missouri. The key to big whitetails is simple. It's, uh, it's age class. And in Iowa and Illinois and your states that have later gun seasons, because of the timing of the gun season, the herd naturally has a, a, a higher age class. The, the, the smaller bucks will live longer because less of those year and a half, two and a half, and three and a half year old bucks are getting shot because our gun season here in Iowa is not until December. The rut's over by then. So many gun seasons and rifle seasons come in right during the peak of the rut. And it's great for for the hunter, you know, the hunter that likes to see a lot of deer and wants to just have a chance at a buck. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're blessed that the season doesn't open until really all that that heavy small buck activity is is over and so those bucks in in our state naturally grow bigger because not as many of them are killed lastly and we'll wrap you up and let you get to your day because we sure appreciate you taking time to spend with us but what would be your best advice for just the average guy that's going turkey hunting here in the next i guess march 15th on to through through may somewhere in that range what would your advice be to the average turkey hunter well, the, are you talking about a beginner or just the average turkey wants to go kill a turkey? Yeah, just, just the average guy. Man, do your homework. Go, you know, Join the National Wild Turkey Federation, for one. It's a great organization. It keeps up on all your turkey populations, where the hot spots are, where to go, the, the game departments in each state. Um, if, you're, if you can, try and find somebody in a, in a state that you're hunting and or a state you want to go to that actually is a member of the Turkey Federation or that has turkey hunted a lot there uh, because you save yourself a lot of time and, and money by hooking up with somebody that already knows where the turkeys are. If you can find somebody that, that uh, is familiar with the ground, whether it be public ground or private, uh, uh, you still got to know what where the turkeys are. You got to have them located, and getting a hold of somebody, whether it be the game department, because conservation departments will let you know right where their tur- heaviest turkey populations are. 
that's what they're there for. And, uh, and, and, and that's open for you to hunt. Or if it's public ground, find, find some people that uh, are, I'm sorry, uh, private ground, find some people that uh, maybe either they'll let you go by permission or the place you can lease that know where the turkeys are. How about for that person new to turkey hunting? What advice would you give to kind of a first time turkey hunter? No question, like I did with my dad and Eddie Moyers, go with somebody that knows how to kill turkeys. You can save so much time and energy spent and learn so much quicker by going with somebody that has been there, done that, knows turkeys like the back of their hand. That's an accomplished caller, that's an accomplished hunter, that has, you know, has turkeys located where you can go right away and have a good turkey hunt with them and learn. Doesn't mean, I mean, ethically, you don't want to go to their spots. That's a no-no with hunting. When you go with somebody to their hunting spot, never go back to their hunting spot. I mean, I say that, that's kind of a kind of a, a primitive rule of thumb in hunting, but people still do it. They do it all the time. Yes, they do. But don't be that person. Yeah. Uh, find your own find your own spot. But if you go with that person, assure them you will never go back there on your own, on your own, or bring somebody with you back there to that spot. Make that spot sacred for that person, and he might take you, they may take you to their honey hole and uh, put you on a great turkey hunt and learn, take notes. Take notes if you have to. Bring a notebook if you have to on what this person's doing to get the job done. And that's great advice because there is learning the vocalizations, the, you know, the woodsmanship, but there's also an etiquette that goes with hunting. You know, I'm not a golfer, I mean, by any stretch. Usually what I do is go to the woods and look for deer sign or turkey sign if they've gotten there, start walking the woods and picking up balls. But a buddy of mine was telling me all the things I was doing wrong. Like I was standing in the wrong spots. You know, I had no idea, you know. And so a lot of the things that are obvious to them in that scenario was not obvious to me. Same for hunting people. Well, he's taking me here. I'll go hunt there. I'll take a friend there. And that stuff, it does happen a lot more than, than you would think it would just out of common courtesies. And there is an etiquette that people probably need to learn that of just how to, the old golden rule, how to treat other people probably as much as they need to learn anything else that goes with the with hunting. So very good advice. Absolutely. Turkey hunting is, well, all hunting is this way. Turkey hunting in particular is, it's, uh, you got to have a lot of room. You got to have a lot of room to breathe. You see another truck park somewhere where you want to go turkey hunting, you know there's turkeys in there, turn around and go somewhere else. Go find another turkey somewhere else. The Lord will bless you. If you act properly, you'll be rewarded. Just think of this way. That guy's set on the turkeys, you know they're there, and he's parked there, got there ahead of you, say on public land. Somewhere there's a turkey that's going to come in to your call, and you may get that turkey killed. And that person set on those other turkeys never, never, never see a thing or get a thing. So there's, there's always a plan. There's always a reason. Be courteous to other hunters, and especially with obviously turkey hunting, you've got, you've got to give people room to breathe because you got to think of the safety factor of it. Lastly, anything that uh, Steve you've learned over the years that we didn't discuss today, and that, that you think would be beneficial, and same for you, Shed. Anything that you think we left out there? You don't talk to somebody that's been hunting as long as Steve has and, and cover everything that's they can be covered. So, but something stands I, I out. I just learned that I've been blessed with uh, a life full of, uh, let's just say meeting the right people and being at the right time. I met, I met Toxie Hayes at a very, very young age, uh, uh, Mark Drury, and I met Toxie through Mark, as a matter of fact, Mossy Oak. And then 
I didn't know what in the world I was getting into when Mark asked me to go on the first Dury Outdoor film hunt that was in North Arkansas. And uh, he said, him and Terry want to start a film company and we're going to name it Drury Outdoors. Do you want to be a part of it? I said, absolutely. <laughs> I went on the first hunt. I even rented a camera to film turkey hunts that spring and then end up buying one, which was my kind of my buy-in to Drury Outdoors. Who knew? Who knew it would turn into what it's turned into today? I didn't know. Well, I mean, we just wanted to pay for our turkey tags and our hotel bills and our our deer hunts. That's all we wanted to do. We we didn't think it would turn into this at all. And then I, I'm blessed to obviously have a beautiful family. And I don't know how in the world I found the wife I have now, Dawn. She's 11 years younger than me, and actually she's pretty smoking hot, in my opinion. <laughs> and you know, if you look at me and look at her, you're like, where'd your grandpa come from? But anyway, and have a have a beautiful family and all the people shed and Toxie and Bill Sugg and Bob Dixon, bless his soul, he's gone now. And Carsey Young in the early years and Danny Rainey and all the people, the early years, of course, Mr. Fox Hayes, uh, how much, how blessed am I that I was able to share camps with Mr. Fox and the Drury's and Ray I and Chris Parrish and, and Harold Knight and David Hale and the list goes on and on of the icons in the industry that I've been able to share the woods with and all of them have left a lasting impression uh, on me and how I conduct myself and just truly blessed that I've been able to, to know all these people just lucky and blessed. That's, that's all I can tell you. And, and, and still enjoying it. And no, I'm not going to quit turkey calling because I still enjoy doing it. And when those scores come out and you're sitting there and you got scores that are as good as Dave Owens and Matt Van Sice and those guys that are calling right now, heck yeah, I'm going to keep calling. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy it. Yep. Yeah, why would you quit? Keeps the blood pumping. And timing, right. timing in this world is everything, you know, and relationship building. People underestimate the amount of people they walk by and don't pay attention to what may come from saying something nice or, or being cordial with someone or having a conversation and timing was everything and that all you and Toxie and that box of camouflage clothes when Mark's out trying to pedal it and get it going and your dad making you go to a competition because he was proud of you. All those things come together and, and that's resulted really in, in Drew Outdoors being, I would say, the foremost authority on, on hunting. You know, with deer cast and all that, which is not just all weather information, there's it's all encompassing. People turn and, and look to that. And you mentioned uh, King of Spring was the number one video. And the, the second one was the one you mentioned was Sound of Spring. Sound of Spring. That was their number number two one, I believe. And so I've watched you on all those and the, and the dear ones too. And again, my perception was Steve Stoll's a heck of a good guy. He's like the guy next door. That you drops your grocery bag, he come over and pick it up for you. But you don't know. But uh, Michael Selman said that this morning. I talked to him and after today, my perception's accurate. You're, you're a very kind, very generous, and very genuine person. And, and and you don't work for the amount of years you did as a firefighter too, not giving back to your community. That says a lot about you as well. And are, are you looking forward to the retirement? Or are you a little apprehensive? No, I, I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm not looking forward to walking away from the salary I make. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've also been blessed to really, I've worked for a fire district all my career that just paid very well, good benefits, you know, and, and 
I'm blessed. I've, I've been able to do things, um, you know, in the fire service that I've, I've worked my way up to, to a, a captain's position and actually was, was acting deputy chief for a while. I loved that position. And I was just temporary act, uh, deputy chief and then made a decision uh, here probably four or five years ago that I didn't want to go any further. I, I love being a captain. I love my engine house. I didn't want the, the headaches and the, the, the stress of a full-time deputy chief. So I'm very, very, feel like I've had a very rewarded, rewarding career. But look, let's make no mistake. Retirement is not retiring. It's walking away from your salary. You're That's walking right, away from your pay and your benefits. <laughs> right. And you're saying, I can live on what I've saved. But at some point, you got to do that. You know, you at some point, you got to just enjoy life. I'm at that point, And I'll do that in Turkey calling too. I'll, and it may probably be sooner than later. I'll, I'll just, I'll, it'll click and I'll go, you know what? I'm just going to go to some of these contests, enjoy, help judge, MC, which I do still now and participate with. There'll be a day where, where I just won't feel like competing, but right now is not the time for that. But it is the time to leave the fire department. I think at my age, is, uh, it's, I'm getting a little old to drag a line into a house fire because even though I'm a captain on a truck, I still have to go in. If somebody's trapped in the house, I have to be right in there trying to get that person out. Rescues on the highway. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still a worker, even though I'm a, a, on, on the truck as a captain. And I can't, can't imagine, you know, just as we talk about the things that you've seen, people that you've met and been around in the hunting industry, I can't imagine the heartache that you've seen from, well, from everything, children and elderly folks, uh, non-elderly, everything, animals, pets, the things that you have seen that I, I can't imagine. I know those things have to leave a, a mark on you that, that you carry with you. Absolutely. I've, I've spent a life uh, serving the public, serving the, uh, the taxpayers, but you see many people that basically just destroy their lives with, eat, with either drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, you name it. And so one thing that I learned is eat right, exercise, stay, stay active, stay away from cigarettes. I've never smoked a day in my life and you'll just, you'll live in a, a very, very full, uh, long life. Yeah, the old adage, if you knew you was going to live as long, you'd take better care of yourself. And so that's, that's important for us to do that as we get older. I, and, you know, Shed brought up the, the weight loss at the beginning of the program, and um, that's where I made my decision. I wasn't going to be that big, fat guy that retires and then gets even fatter and has health issues because of it and, and uh, ultimately uh, a shorter life because of it. Time to make that decision is now. And you've earned that. So very proud of you for that. You'll, you won't look back either and you'll be making more videos. You might get into, you might go international. Take turkey calling where there's not even turkey calling competition. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very, very happy to be with the Woodhaven family and be with Drury Outdoors and still with Mossy Oak, of course. And what three, three great families to think of in this outdoor industry, Drury's, Mossy Oak, and, and Woodhaven. And I'm like family with all three of those. Mike Pentecost has been great. And Woodhaven just has a great quality line of calls. Man, if you get a chance, check them out. Woodhaven Custom Calls. Just go to www.woodhavencustomcalls.com. See what we got. I've got a call that we introduced called a modified cutter. It's my signature mouth call. It's in your, uh, I sent you a picture of it. I was actually holding a modified cutter. Uh, I designed that call, and I'm going to come out with some more design mouth calls. And, of course, 
DeerCast with Drury Outdoors. I'm on a DeerCast. I'm a DeerCast member uh, uh, and contributor, and and that's where I do with my footage. I like that I'm not tag, tagged on any really specific television show. I, I think Winchester's Drury uh, Drury Outdoor uh, Natural Winchester Natural Born. Some of my hunts have rolled out on it. If you want to go and look, go on a Drury website and go to Winchester's Natural Born. That television show has got my probably my last two or three uh, buck kills on there or more. I don't know. And yeah, just very blessed to be able to be in it from the, I guess the ground floor, you could call it when Will, Will Primos came out with his first turkey video, Mark Terry and I just thought we could do just as good. You know, we, we, we felt like we could, and don't get me wrong, that, that first film from Will Primos was iconic. It was <laughs> spectacular. Love all those guys. But we just felt like we could we could do a good turkey uh, film as well, and of course, Russ is history. There you go. Yeah, heck, we're running there from a, a lot of you, although kind of com competitors to agree, but all of you iconic and, and working together. And yeah, you've been blessed to be with some of the big ones, being Mossy Oak, Woodhaven, and and the Drury's. So you, you couldn't ask for better than that. So, Steve, thank you again for your time. Can't thank you enough. Pleasure visiting with you, Shed. Always good to see you. Thanks, guys. Steve, we'll talk to you soon. Look forward to watching your uh, all your hunts coming up this spring. Enjoy yourself. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me, Shad. Love you, brother. Thank you, man. You guys take all care. Right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for spending time today with Shad and I and our guest, world champion turkey caller, Mr. Steve Stoltz. You can find more information on Steve's turkey and deer hunting career by simply searching Steve Stoltz on YouTube. You can also find additional information through Woodhaven Custom Calls, Jury Outdoors and DeerCast, and Mossy Oak. Please assist us by liking and rating today's episode and also by subscribing to the Foshi Creek Podcast. We're not a sponsored podcast, so the only way we can reach a broader audience is by word of mouth and the number of subscriptions, likes, and positive ratings that we receive. Please share our content on your social media platforms with all your hunting and outdoor friends. Thank you again for listening, and as always, we learned everything we knew down on Foshi Creek. Well, that's where we all would be. Skipping rocks, skipping school. Daddy taught us a golden rule with an old cape A shitty spot to sit. We learned everything we knew. That old Bullshit Creek.